0: This is Religion and Theology, a podcast from the Center for Theology and Religious Studies. This is the third part where we re-podcast past lectures held by honorary doctors at the HD faculties of Lund University. And this time we will listen to Dr. Elias Bongba. And once more, the introduction will be given by Martin Degrell from the podcast HT Samtal. My name is Martin Degrell. At the doctoral confirmment ceremony of 2018 the Faculty of Theology at Lund University appointed two honorary doctors. Professor Elias Bongba and Robert D. Resnick. On May 24, they've both visited the faculty and held open lectures. And we will now hear Professor Bongba's lecture entitled Eschatology and Otherness, Imagining and Anticipating the Future in Africa. Professor Elias Kifon-Bongba is a theology, religious studies, and African studies scholar who works at Rice University in Houston, Texas. His research and teaching covers broad areas and combines theology, religious studies, philosophy, and ethnology. His books include philosophical, theological, and social analysis of African witchcraft and discuss Public theology as well as the HIV AIDS pandemic in Africa. He is currently working on an extensive introduction to the three major groups of religious tradition in Africa traditional African religions, Islam, and Christianity. This is Professor and now Honorary Doctor Elias Bongba recorded at Lux on May 24th, 2018.
1: Uh, So what I want to focus on in the short time we have ahead is eschatology and otherness. And I am working on the dialectics between anticipation and practical service. First, what I want to do is to recognize the work of John S. B.T., arguably one of the most distinguished African theologians, in 1963, Professor Meaty submitted a PhD dissertation in New Testament at Cambridge University in which he began a journey in the exploration of New Testament eschatology in its African background. What he argued very briefly was the fact that The African Inland Church Mission, which had done work among the Akamba people in Kenya, had presented a teaching of eschatology which emphasized an otherworldly view of eschatology. In other words, uh, the task of the church was to prepare Christians for the time when Christ will return, take people to heaven, and then you can begin to imagine all of the biblical images of going to heaven, walking on the streets of gold, going to heaven, meeting jesus christ and uh bt argued that this was a mistake because it had not taken into consideration the African world view, and so In discussing all of the aspects of that eschatological vision, he articulated several things and I will just mention them very briefly. One, he contrasted the African worldview, especially Akamba thought, with the rest of the world saying that the Akamba understanding of time had basically two dimensions. One, there was a very distant past and an immediate present, the present in, in, uh, in which we are, but very little to do with the future. So time in some places in the entire text, he would argue, seems to point backwards to a very distant past rather than forward looking. And he argued that this was problematic Because when you compare it, it meant that it did not have any anticipation of a future in the tradition which we know in Christianity, and this was a lack. But more importantly, he went on to discuss ideas about death among the Akamba, because eschatology talks a lot about death and uh, the life after, and he, he argued that The Akambas believe that when somebody dies, they go into the next world where they live together with their ancestors. And uh, in some cases, it, it is not quite clear in the text if they live in a socially conscious world or they continue to live as the kind of eschatological vision that is presented in the New Testament because... In several places, Mbiti seemed to suggest also that when a person dies after several generations, uh, that person is more or less forgotten. Even though in the back and forth discussion, he also maintained the view that Africans maintain a very sustained close relationship with their ancestors. Hence, ancestors are very venerated in most African communities. Central to Professor Mbici's presentation was the fact that what made New Testament eschatology, and I think he is correct about that, is that it was Christologically driven, grounded on the idea of the resurrection of Jesus and that Jesus is going to come back. And it is that kind of future anticipation which the Africa Inland Mission promoted among the Akamba. But more than that, He studied not only the sermons, but all aspects of liturgy, even the songs that were taught, which were mostly uh, European hymns that were translated into the local languages, uh, all pointed to this future-oriented, so much so that one would get the impression that life here on earth was not important. And um, Ambiti explored almost all areas of eschatological life, arguing with very clear precision that the understanding of New Testament eschatology emphasizes life, death, resurrection, but (coughs) more importantly, that this is going to be life in the presence of God. uh, and I think in, on, on many scores, he, he was right about that, that the future anticipation is that believers would be in the presence of God. But the, the main thing which I think the reception of that text highlighted very clearly was the fact that almost all scholars, including his own fellow Kenyan philosopher, Dismas Masolo, argued that, he was wrong on the question of time, that there are actually no cultures that do not have a future orientation. In fact, arguing from his own text and reading his own text clearly, uh, it indicated that if at least there is a world where ancestors go or people go and become ancestors, then one could not argue as he argued very clearly that there was the absence of a future in African thought. V.Y. Uh, Mudimbe uh, uh, placed his uh, work in the category of uh, African scholars mostly theolo- theologians at that time uh, following the work of Placid Temples, the Belgian <clears throat> missionary who uh, were using ethnology at that time to be able to understand not only the Christian message but to find some points of convergence and BT he argued was uh, one of the most Successful, even if one disagreed with some of his observations on time. And uh, there were other responses, uh, which I will not go into uh, deeply, but simply to point out that he was accused uh, by other scholars of uh, using Western thought to actually dominate African thinking. And I, I think this is not the case, because the extensive discussion and exploration of Akamba thought and life and concepts of death and destiny demonstrated that he had not indeed uh, actually violated that kind or his intention was not to overshadow African thought with uh, Western philosophical and theological conceptions. If anything, I think uh, one may quarrel with the kind of eschatological imagination which um, Mbiti demonstrated but there is absolutely no doubt that uh, he tried as hard as he could to balance New Testament teaching. And the reason is that this PhD uh, at Cambridge was written in the faculty of New Testament, and uh, he was aware of all of the major scholarship at that time and tried then to forge a new uh, thought experiment bringing together African ideas and theological ideas. What was absent in MBT's work was uh, the discussion about millennialism, whether it was premillennial, millennial, or postmillennialism, the idea that there would be a 1,000 year reign of Christ for a good reason. I think. After the speculative eschatologies of the late 1940s, especially the ones that blossomed after the reestablishment of the present state of Israel, uh, it seemed as millennialism had run its course. The only places where it uh, remained was uh, in places like Dallas Theological Seminary in uh, Texas and many other conservative evangelical schools where there was very intense speculation. When will Jesus rule in Jerusalem for a thousand years? Does he come before that, or is it after that, or the more extreme uh, wing of that discussion was, there is going to be no millennial rule, no no millennium. Um, BT did not engage in that, and I think uh, that was an appropriate move because The discussion in eschatology was already changing. Uh, Wolfhard Pannenberg in Germany, as uh, well as Jürgen Moltmann were already writing. In fact, Moltmann would distinguish himself as probably one of the premier uh, theologians on eschatology, always pointing to what both he and Pannenberg would describe as a future orientation. And that future orientation could not be shrouded by the kind of uh, speculative theology which millennialism had come to dominate in the evangelical world. And so Mbiti uh, had escaped that. My views about eschatology would later be shaped when I enrolled at North American Baptist Seminary, studying with a very young evangelical theologian at that time, Stanley Grantz, who himself was a stu- student of Wolfhard Pannenberg, did his PhD under him in Germany at the University of Munich. And it was very clear in his systematic theology that speculative ideas about the second coming was not really the major thing. But it was a Trinitarian focus, moving the creation, all of creation, us as human beings, the rest of our habitat, and every uh, person and thing We share life with towards a telos, towards a goal, which God had planned for all of creation. Now, of course, uh, parts of the discussion on eschatology will continue to be dominated by Jewish apocalyptic literature and uh, messianic literature and uh, uh, millennialists who continue always to speculate this is when it is going to happen. The music of the church continued to reflect that. People sang about the coming of the church, uh, the African-American Andre Crouch. uh, uh, Everybody knows that spiritual. Soon and very soon we are going to see the king. Hallelujah, hallelujah, we are going to see the king. Then I think it was in the late 70s, it it was Bill Gaither who wrote, The King is Coming, the marketplace is empty, busy housewife sees their labors, and all of that eschatology had not gone away, except that it had returned this time with very many different sections. But I would think that the main uh, trend of thought was the kind of argument that was being articulated by people like Moltmann, Pannenberg, who were clearly not only looking for some escapist ideology or anticipating that Christ is coming to whisk away only Christians and Christians alone (coughs) to some place where they will be together. But we had to look at it as a future broad orientation in which God will continue to bring about the fulfillment of the task of creation. But one could argue that in the second half of the 20th century, on the eve of the uh, 21st century, eschatology was facing very, very strong critique. Uh, if we think of uh, Africans, it is uh, also this notion of uh, corporate eschatology, which Miti had talked about, which would then begin to bring in new scholarly perspective. For instance, from Cameroon, theologian Fabien Aboussi Bulaga began to look at eschatology, arguing that rather than looking at the specificity with which scholars had mapped out every detail and almost always came up with a calendar as millennials did, that we look at eschatology as not only an orientation, but a complete change, a complete change. So eschatology for Ebusi Bulaga was what he called the transgressions of limits. And what that transgressions of limits was the fact that through the work of eschatology, God would be renewing, reconfiguring, also changing all structures of dominance In fact, it's very clear in Christianity Without Fetishes, An African Critique and Recapture of Christianity, that's uh, the book in which he makes this brief argument, Uh, Ebusi Bulaga argued that when you look at it, eschatology is the signal that God would do away or is moving, urging us to participate (coughs) in the elimination of all forces of discrimination. And he named them. Abuse of power, gender relations, uh, the neglect of the human habitat, and everything. And when you rightly look at eschatology, you will see that it is this kind of thing that uh, uh, God had in mind. In fact, Bulaga wrote in the years a little quote, uh, talking about Jesus. He said, his speech is also judgment. It pronounces, expresses a set of transformations a complexus of effects to be produced in the area of behavior and attitude and institutions. The judgment is the eruption of thought, word, and deed of the end of history, of the perishability of the world as human beings have made it. And that is crucial. The world not as God has made it, but the end of the world as human beings have made it. Human beings have erected their world On the basis of the opposition of the struggle between, this is very careful, this is in the late 80s, between man and woman, master and slave, rich and power, instructed and ignorant, saint and sinner, the proclamation and practice of the end unveil provisional character of the hierarchies of institutions and values which sin the overestimation of fear of oneself and of what is transformed into ultimate final realities. This is a key passage from uh, Abusi Bulaga. He is arguing that eschatology then is about transformations, not necessarily uh, sitting and waiting or going to some hill, uh, setting up some date or looking at, you know, what the, you know, the government in Israel or the Knesset has done, and we think that we can then go ahead and overcome or overtake or appropriate, misappropriate the rich Jewish faith into our own private in- interpretations of eschatology. So it is about transformations, it is about God moving towards a telos, God creating a new orientation, which then implies that practical life needs to be very, very different. Um, Jacob uh, Viren has written a wonderful book that just came out this year from Braille, in which he argues that if you look at all of these speculative approaches to eschatology, what they lack is an openness towards the other. And for Viren, it's particularly the religious uh, author. Because people are focused on a very one specific tradition, what happens to the Christian tradition. But if you look at the broader picture, the question then becomes, uh, if eschatology indeed, as I believe it is, it's uh, God's us, what happens to everybody else? What happens to Jews? What happens to Muslims? What happens to Hindus? What happens to everybody, you know, so there needs to be some kind of a humble approach a welcoming an openness to other perspectives about eschatology, and in my notes here I refer to James Cone Uh, James Cone just passed away last week, uh, the leader of black theology in which he argued the same he said the church is a community that has got it, and what the church has got is the fact that God loves all people and is moving the world towards some kind of future consummation, which would be unity with God and all human being. I think here's the second part of uh, uh, my brief discussion this morning. If eschatology is that kind of an orientation, if eschatology moves us to... Uh, as Mbiti would have it in the presence of God to culminate creation. What are the implications? I think the implications are numerous. Uh, you can pick any New Testament teaching. You are going to find something with which we can agree or disagree or we can write books and write theses and uh, you know, maybe we'll each claim we are right. But there are a number of teachings in what New Testament scholars often call the eschatological discourse, in which Jesus is talking about these things. Jesus is very clear that he did not know the time when he would come. He didn't know the end time. It was only known to the Father, meaning God. But Jesus is very programmatic. He leaves the disciples. There are three parables that he tells all of those parables talk about a very active engagement. I mean, one of them is even about money. Somebody is given money to go and trade. One of them actually buries the money and doesn't do anything with it. When he returns, uh, you you know, the master tells him, you you should have invested my money. So... Uh, I, I mean, I don't want to say there's something Christian about the stock market or all of that, but, but you get the point that even from Jesus' perspective, eschatology means an active engagement in the world. But the what New Testament scholars often call the pericope, the teaching, the text that is, becomes very central begins in Matthew chapter 24, verse 31, where Jesus begins to talk about when all the nations will be gathered and he will pass judgment. Separate people, you go to the left, you go to the right, to the right, come and enjoy the kingdom of my Father. You are condemned into eternal fire. And the question is, why, 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 why? Jesus says, look, I was hungry and he fed me. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you took care of me. I think if you go back to either James Cohn or Fabian Busi it is very clear then that the central question at eschatology would not even really be if you believed or if one believed. Jesus doesn't quite focus on that, but Jesus is concerned about the individual and social relationships that we build, because those then become the basis for making important distinctions towards the end. Now, I want you to suspend that, and we'll come back to that in a minute. Then, for me, one of the most important passages on the New Testament uh, actually comes from the letter to the Thessalonians by Paul, where Paul sets out what seems to be like the order of business. People were dying... And so the churches that Paul had started began wondering, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? And Paul writes back to them. Oh, well, I mean, the writer, uh, we didn't know it that uh, the Apostle Paul very clearly, as New Testament scholars would tell you. So, 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 the, so, so, so the, the, he writes back to the churches and no, says, no, don't worry about those who have died because we will not precede them, those of us who are alive, when the trumpet comes. They will rise up to go and meet the Lord, and then those who are alive will be caught up with them in the air to be with the Lord. And then Paul has a pastoral agenda. Paul says, comfort one another with these words. This this actually, if scholarship is, is correct, becomes one of the motivating themes in Heidegger's being in time, where he actually argues that Paul is concern about anxiety and how one conducts himself. Uh, In being in time, the major thing Heidegger argues, as you all know, is that the being that is there, Dasein, has a concern, and that one concern is that there will come a time when it will cease to be, and that idea that it will cease to be becomes a matter of concern, which consumes Dasein. And so, Heidegger's response is, look, don't worry, be authentic. As Dasein, don't try to do this, don't try to change your death, don't anticipate it, don't do anything. Be brave, be a brave woman, be a brave man, and uh, anticipate your own death when it comes. I mean, that's a very old philosoph- philosophical orientation, which probably Socrates, it uh, uh, goes back to Socrates. But uh, so with Paul, you have a pastoral uh, mandate. Comfort one another with these things. With Heidegger, be brave, be bold. The world is coming to an end. It may be your death, or it may be sometimes in the future. If we reflect on these two passages, and uh, this is my last major point, um, the question then becomes, if eschatology is an orientation for the fulfillment of the creation as the good Lord intended it. What ought be the pastoral mandate? What ought we do to others? Let me suggest that these two passages, uh, I think, invite a practice which should orient us. I mentioned Maltman uh, earlier Later on in life, Maltman began to write about science, the impact of interdisciplinary studies. The fact that as theologians, we could not assume that we've got everything straight, but that we had to listen to science, uh, scientists, especially the science about our understanding of the world in which we live. I think we can make a connection if eschatology is about justice in all directions or invites us to a life of justice, a life of responsibility, we can then begin to ask the questions, what can we do? Elsewhere, I think I have tried to argue that it invites a diaconia or a life of service which moves those who are part of the Christian tradition to a new sense of advocacy a new sense of activism uh, let, let, let me put two proposals on the table the first one is rather obvious in his first encyclical the Holy Father called the world in Lauda to see to take care of the planet it is our gift God has given this planet this world for us to manage Uh, I mean, I know, I expect you are probably coffee to tell me, don't you come from a place where some politicians believe that climate change is a hoax? (laughs) Uh, Yes, some people believe that. But I think in that first encyclical by the Holy Father Pope Francis, he made it very clear he did not only address Catholics, Probably one of the best written encyclical, in which he invites all of us to a responsibility. Because if you think of it, if eschatology is an orientation, and God has created us and given us the knowledge, the ability, the tools, the responsibility to engage in our world, and we do not know where that final gathering place would be, doesn't it make sense that we take climate change seriously and that we do everything to make our habitat livable rather than escape from the world, destroy it, and trash it in anticipation that soon and very soon we are going to see the king or God is coming to whisk us out of this world. I think my Baptist friends think I'm out of my mind because uh, you know then I ask the question really. Um, there are several billion Hindus or Sikhs and Muslims in the world. God is going to watch them take me and watch them roast in hell. I don't know the answer but 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 i think we have the responsibility to make this world a better place which means we can do a lot of things as people who are men and women of faith we have a responsibility to the habitat which we all share together to be sure that we preserve it secondly I made this argument sometimes in Zambia, they almost ran me out of town. And uh, remember the passage in Matthew where Jesus says, I was hungry and you did not not feed me when he says he will be sending some people away. Here's the question. If you lived, grew up in the 70s, the big thing in the news about Africa was desertification. The Sahara was going down Kalahari is a live desert, the Namib desert, and, you know, resources are shrinking. So how are you going to practice the uh, and provide food for the many, many people? If we go back to Moltman again and think about the impact of science, the impact of what we can do with the capabilities that we have now. And here's why they wanted to run me out of town at this talk I gave. I argued that for those of us in Africa who really have millions to feed and if the church is going to fulfill its mission, couldn't we be a little bit more creative to make sure that we can... Guarantee food security, and that when the crisis hits, it is not only trucked from somewhere or flown from somewhere, but that the kinds of agriculture, the kinds of uh, practice industries that we encourage help us feed ourselves and feed others. And that's when I raised the very difficult question, which is actually quite problematic here in Europe, also. Uh, I talked about genetically modified seeds or foods. My point was simply that as Africans, these are developments in biotechnology and engineering which we, if we are concerned about livelihood, that we cannot just throw out the window and say, look, those Europeans are it again. They're trying to poison us or they're trying to do away with us. Of course, I know the EU has very strong standards here about these things and actually monitor it much more, uh, better than we do in the States. Uh, The uh, kinds of focus that companies like Monsanto would get in the United States uh, doesn't come close to the scrutiny that takes place here in Europe. But think, 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 think with me for a moment. If we are able to come up with something that can provide high yield without being toxic or without allowing those companies to sort of uh, get some license that they control the seed, that the seed is always there. So if they can develop high yielding seeds and sell it to the farmers, but work with the farmers to make sure that it is safe and it increases food security. I think That to be would be doing the work of God. The work of God does not only mean saving souls and making sure that everybody has checked the line, I have believed in Jesus and so I am saved. I think the work of God means being able to engage in the appropriate use of these resources which make life livable for everybody, which then assures us that as we anticipate what God is doing, the future that God is bringing, that we are doing our part in moving. I, I mean, I know this last proposal is I, it's, its always a shock when I talk it, uh, with people, bit, but let me ask one question. When you go to the pharmacy or the doctor and the doctor writes a prescription, something was modified, Somewhere before it became the pill that you are taking, ah, is it possible that those men and women who are working on new strategies to find this high-yielding seeds are onto something which could actually make our human habitat much better? So it seems to me that yes, the church cannot escape its eschatological vision, but that vision is not always in the score keeping, watching dates, speculating about streets of gold, determining who gets to live with God and who does not, or determining which religion has it right or who has it right, but it is an anticipation that creation is moving according to god's will and we are all invited to be participants in this kind of movement and it is a movement from our perspective that should issue injustice for all but to make that justice for all possible we have to actively engage our communities with our thoughts, our ideas, our minds, our inventions, so that we can be able to, one, protect the environment, number two, make sure that if indeed, mm, let me be as Baptist as I can at this point, if indeed we do meet our Lord, we can say yes, no child went to bed hungry. Thank you very much. And uh, I really, Odina and I are really, very thankful for your hospitality and for the honor uh, Dean. I think that this is an invitation for me to work harder and I promise you that I will do that. Thank you very much.